Welcome to Series 2 of the Purple Rainbow Pancreatic Cancer Podcast. I'm Leslie Goodburn and I decided to develop the podcast after the death of my husband Seth from pancreatic cancer. I wanted to help others understand the disease, its impact, the work that goes on every day to find treatments and hopefully one day a cure. Throughout the series you'll be accompanied by me and my friend Charlotte Foster from Charlotte Foster Productions and we'll talk all about the aspects of the disease from biology to emotional and physical impact. Along the way, we'll meet patients, families, doctors, nurses, oncologists, researchers, lots of different people with varied and different interesting experiences of the disease. The podcast will be frank about the reality of the disease. They will show the commitment and dedication of people working to support a breakthrough in a cancer where survival rates have barely changed in the last 50 years. But they will also focus on the love, the community of support and personal stories of those whose lives are affected. So join us on our second journey of discovery via the Purple Rainbow Pancreatic Cancer Podcast, made in memory of Seth Goodburn. Hello, welcome to July's episode of Purple Rainbow Pancreatic Cancer Podcast. You haven't heard from us for quite some time. In fact, the last episode came out in February, but I think I am safe to say we all know what's been going on between February and now. Yep, a pandemic, lockdown, and it just meant that a lot of the episodes we had planned had to be cancelled or postponed because people were dealing with the pandemic, COVID-19. So apologies for making you wait for so long, but we are back. We are going to be continuing for the rest of the year and we're going to keep on doing what we do. Now, even if I say so myself, I think this episode is absolutely worth the wait. I've been speaking to Gerald Copeman from the Elizabeth Copeman Fund and we just chatted and chatted and chatted. I found out so much and it was absolute pleasure to to speak to him. I began our conversation by asking him to tell me a little bit about his wife, Elizabeth. This year, we've been maybe reflecting on all of that more than previously because it's 10 years since we lost Elizabeth and 10 years since we established the charity in her name. But um, we... We work together, as well as you know, being married and, and so on. We, we, we worked together for a number of years and had an excellent relationship. Um, so going back all that way when we first met, you know, we'd been going out for three weeks when we decided to get married and, and it, it, it went on from there. So that tells you a little bit, I guess, about the sort of relationship we had and also about the loss that we feel because of that relationship. And my four children would reflect on that in a slightly different way, but still with um, a lot of a lot of love and a lot of gratitude for um, what she brought to us collectively and individually. Um, whilst I've been involved a lot in, in in public work and high profile stuff from a business point of view, local government, health, and so on, um, Elizabeth was always supporting me but she was always the the head of the household so I I I knew which side my bread was buttered from that point of view but (laughs) 
you know, it's easy to say she was an amazing woman. You know, she wasn't extrovert, um, but she made a huge impact. Um, you know, when she was in a room, she didn't have to be raising her voice or pushing around and making a fuss. She would, um, she would create an impact just simply by being who she was. So huge loss, great memories. And uh, she gave us the, through her tragic death, the incentive to establish the charity that we have, which has been hugely successful. I say hugely successful because we've been punching above our weight and we've achieved far more than we thought we would and more than we set out to achieve, really. So I, I guess we're a bit chuffed or, or smug. I don't know which is the right word, but, but a bit of both, maybe. I think you're allowed to be. I think that's, yeah. that's, that's allowed. So you set up the charity in her name because she died from pancreatic cancer. What was... It sounds such, it's such a daft question to ask, what was that like? But would you mind just sort of explaining a little bit about the details of, of her diagnosis? Was it difficult to get a diagnosis or, 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 or what, was, what was happening around that? Well, like so many people who, who um, receive a diagnosis of, of pancreatic cancer, it was very late on in the development of the cancer itself. Um, and Elizabeth had been um, suffering some kind of tummy and, and bowel issues um, that were not um, a little bit out of the ordinary, but, you know, things you sort of say, well, you know, maybe it'll be okay next week or next month or whatever. And because they didn't clear up, she went to the GP. Um, and I think, uh, as again, statistically, a lot of pancreatic cancer patients go to their GP several times before we get round to the issue of, well, could it be something really serious as opposed to irritable bowel syndrome or bad back or whatever the other um, signs are. Um, but um, one of the, the telltale signs is, is when jaundice appears, and, and that was the trigger for Elizabeth um, to be directed to um, CT scan, which immediately revealed that she had a a fairly advanced tumour, uh, which was actually pressing on the, the portal vein. So it was, at that time, it was um, kind of 50-50 as to whether it would be operable. Um, but uh, because we're very close to Addenbrooke's at Cambridge, which is a, a regional centre for pancreatic cancer surgery and indeed oncology, there are some very skilled surgeons there and they decided that they would they would go ahead and and operate and the experience on the on the on the day of the operation was um something i've, I've not really been through before um in, in any other way um the surgeon had told us that uh, because of the location of the tumor and and the fact that it was attached to the portal vein um that they would they would go in and have a look basically and if they got to a point where they realized that it wasn't operable they would come out again um, he said that would probably do, be two or three hours so we were waiting for that two or three hour period to pass beyond which we had hoped and expected um, that they would go on and complete the operation which they did but it was very surreal just waiting for that clock to tick on and um, so we're over that that barrier we're, we're now into the surgery and they completed the surgery successfully from their 
point of view, except um, that some of the disease remained. So they couldn't get everything out, um, but they decided that the operation, the surgery had gone on for long enough. And so, so she, was, she was left with a certain amount of disease, um, which obviously was then going to be treated with chemotherapy. And that's what, what happened. And so uh, following her recovery from surgery, which was, which was very good in terms of her, you know, you, you can instinctively see if someone, you know, has got through surgery okay. And I remember going up to um, the ward, the recovery ward, and she, she had one of these <laughs> pink NHS 90s on. She looked so so bright and cheery and, and, and looked as if she'd recovered well from, from that. Um, and then we moved on to oncology. Um, and um, it was then that she, she, she was still suffering some of the effect of the surgery, I think, and couldn't go to her first um, consultant appointment in oncology. Um, so... I, I phoned the consultant. I was at that time. I was a director at Addenbrooke's on on the board, and 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 I knew a lot of the consultants quite well, which was very helpful, I have to say. Um, and she said, "Well, why don't you come in and we'll talk through things?" So I, I went to Elizabeth's first oncology appointment without her because she was too unwell. Um, and uh, I remember walking back down the oncology corridor after that meeting with the consultant um and i knew i was going to lose her um and from that conversation i i had with the consultant who i know well and we still work with with her and many of her colleagues um i just knew what was going to happen and i started to prepare myself for it and so the next stages were an attempt at chemotherapy to try and um, deal with this remaining disease so the, the program of chemo began but it was up and down because um, her, her bloods perhaps wouldn't be quite right on the day of the planned chemotherapy so you have to go back again we had problems with bank holidays and missing sessions and it, it wasn't really that well managed very difficult to get your head round in terms of you know how how effective this might be but although elizabeth had a very high pain and discomfort threshold um she didn't tolerate the chemotherapy very well at all which surprised me because she's so resilient to surgery and the pain immediately following the surgery she coped with but for various reasons the chemotherapy didn't suit her. The, the options on chemotherapy weren't as good as they are now. I mean, they're, they're still not brilliant mm. in terms of treatment. We're still talking about inadequate options of treatment. They work in some cases. Sometimes, as you know, we can do a mix and match um, on some of the um, chemo treatments, but she didn't um, handle that very well. And we then went to uh, an, the next consultant appointment. Um, it's usually kind of every three months. I can't remember the exact timing, but Elizabeth actually was feeling unwell at the time and actually asked the, asked the consultants, you know, how much time she had left. 
and the consultant said well what what i see before me is is someone who is quite unwell um and you know the basically it, it doesn't look too promising um now that was <laughs> it, it's an interesting point to, to discuss actually about um prognoses and how they are given communicated to patients um but after that conversation elizabeth lived for another year so it was a complete surprise and you know i i we we are currently looking after some when i say looking after supporting some patients and families where the diagnosis was given three years ago there are, there are two or three at the moment i think people <laughs> Um, and several times during that three-year period, they've been given three months to live. So, so there's actually an issue here about how healthcare professionals deliver this kind of news. Um, and there needs to be a kind of a, a warning about, well, I'm, I'm saying to you, in my experience, it's three months, but it could be more, it could be less. I put a caveat on it somewhere. but. And so, so with, with some of the patients that I say that we, we support and we, we go to clinic with patients if that's what they request. Um, and the trouble with telling a patient that they've got three months is that's what they go away with. That's the, the take-home message, as it were, and you start preparing yourself for three months. Um, and in a number of cases, as I say, recent experience suggests that um, these people have survived for for longer so difficult balance for for the healthcare staff in terms of what do you do you tell them what you think is the case based on experience um, or do you leave it fairly open I don't know I mean I don't know if you've spoken yeah. to other people on this well, this is something that has come up a few times actually during the podcast uh, yeah. that people go well I was told I had three months and it's now nine months down the line and I'm still here and yeah. it's that People ask, how long have I got? What, what, what do they reply? How do they reply? It's, it's a really tricky one. And it's one yeah. I'm glad I don't have to no. lie awake at night worrying about, you know, how do I do this? What do I do? But it is something that I think needs looking at. Um, yeah. And I think it is a, a difficult one. It is. Yeah. yeah. So, so tell me so. then a little bit more about the fund and what it is you do, because we've, we've touched on it a little bit that you're there to support yeah. people. Yeah. So, so, so Elizabeth and her sister uh, started raising uh, money for pancreatic cancer research initially um, with a fundraising event about a month before she died. And so her plan was to send that money that was raised to one of the national charities to support their work. But on her death, we decided that we would like to become involved in fundraising and supporting people. So in the end, that money didn't go to a national charity. It, it became um, the, the, the starting amount for our, um, our charity, our fund. Um, and we, we've, we've built it from, from there, really. Um, so what has developed over the last... Well, it developed very quickly, actually. Um, obviously, raising money to provide grants for people who are experiencing financial difficulties because of pancreatic cancer or um, they already were experiencing difficulties and pancreatic cancer has made things worse for them 
and their immediate family. And we provide a small grants program. We do make exceptions to our, our, our cap on funding. So if there is a special case or we think we can really make more of a difference if we fund to a higher level, then, then we will do that. But it could be just to cover the cost of travel expenses to, to treatment or a spouse visiting their spouse in hospital and, and, and they can't afford um, petrol. It may be some way. And as you know, with pancreatic cancer, we've got regional centres. So you could be you know, in, in Great Yarmouth um, and still having to come 70 miles to Addenbrooke. So it, it, it's that kind of thing. But also um, some of the grants are made for clothing where people have understandably lost weight because of their disease and they need new clothes. Sometimes it's used for, for um, bedding because change of bedding becomes an issue. Sometimes, and these are very nice events or, or, or whatever, um, uh, a, a making memories weekend, so supporting a family to, or a couple to go away to a hotel. And one recently was a hotel where this particular couple had got married. So they went back, they hadn't been back there um, since then, which was, I don't know, it was, I, I guess, between 20, 30 years before. And sometimes they will feed back some photographs of, of the event and it, it's, it's all lovely. And so just to, touching back on that issue of, of the prognosis, I mean, our approach, um, I suppose, again, reflecting on, on our own experience. So when the, when the consultant effectively said to Elizabeth and, and us, you know, you, it, it looks as though you're going to die, go home and prepare to die, was a kind of implicit message. Our view of what we do is you have a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, you're going to live. Um, we don't know for how long, but we will help you to make that time the best it can possibly be in as far as we can through our grants or our support or our friendship or our advocacy. So we get involved in the patient pathway in a variety of different ways to try and support them through what is, you know, for anybody with cancer, but pancreas cancer is, is a brute. There's no question about that. The, the stats confirm that. Um, so we're, we're just wanting to befriend and it may be just catching up on, on the text, you know, hi, how are you? Uh, maybe a phone call it may be in some cases that we go along or I go along to to clinic sometimes the NHS doesn't get it right and it's probably to do with communication somewhere along the line and you know, not getting timely feedback on on scans um, I mean it's been a difficult period for the last three months anyway and that was something we we talked about earlier, didn't we, about the, the effect of, yeah. of, of COVID-19. Um, but sometimes um, turning up at the three-monthly review, having had the scan a week before, but the results are still not back. So you end up having a clinic consultation where the consultant hasn't got the complete picture. So that's frustrating. It's actually not very efficient. And so you may not get that feedback on the, on the scan for another week and it might be over a phone call or whatever. 
and there are other issues that we've we've dealt with there and i think my experience of the nhs and contact with health service i think has been helpful there so that we can hopefully resolve issues that have arisen so the sort of thing we do is is, is support of any nature and currently it's a, it's an ongoing I suppose I call it a case really um, I feel like a, a case manager um, but a lady was referred to us um, she had and has terminal pancreatic cancer um, inoperable um, she's actually survived for three years since diagnosis she's one of the ones I was talking about earlier um, but the reason she was referred to us by the clinical nurse specialist at Addenbrooke's was because she has a one of her daughters has learning difficulties, um, quite quite severe learning difficulties, and mum was wanting to make sure that um, she could provide independent living accommodation for her daughter before she died, and this all started three years ago, and we between us all working with the local housing authority and social services and so on, we managed to get a, a property, a lovely little um, one bedroom property for um, the, the, the daughter. Uh, the daughter is, is, is middle-aged, 45, um, um, so adult. Um, but we've been struggling, fighting, arguing for the last two years about the appropriate level of social care support to make sure that that works. And we're still at it. So whilst the, the connection with pancreatic cancer is a little bit tenuous, we started off supporting the mum and we're now friends of the family and we've become part of the furniture, if you like. So, but but mum's symptoms are becoming more difficult to manage and that is focusing in on the, the urgency of all of this, of getting this right. And... The potential impact on the daughter with learning difficulties of losing her mum which is which is going to happen um, so sometimes it's just a small element of support that we offer sometimes mm. it's it, it's it's quite, it's taking quite on a battle <laughs> big, big and ongoing but you know um, when, when people come to us they get they get the full package if they need it so you know we don't turn anybody away we have a kind of 24 7 um, service um our, our helpline phone sits next to my toaster in the kitchen so if it goes off late at night or on a sunday morning or whatever then people can still either speak to me or we'll get straight back to them so you know we, we, we like to think it's a fairly seamless service and we've helped hundreds of people and we've raised and distributed uh, tens and thousands tens of thousands of pounds um, the feedback has been very good um, and we have preferred to help with this disease at the sharp end. So what I mean by that is rather than raising money for research, there are lots of people doing that and doing it very well. And there are some good research charities for this disease. We decided that our priority should be to help people who have a diagnosis and help them through their early battles and and, and, and stay with them and also support the family beyond bereavement. So there are two or three people that I still catch up with for coffee when they want to, um, them having lost 
mm-hmm. you know, a spouse or a mum or or whatever. And we're very grateful to some of those people who have then raised money for our charity. So it's been great and we're still in touch with those people and and we have volunteers for some of our fundraising events and they're outstanding people and deserve medals and and so on. Um, so we've created a bit of a family, I think. And, um, it certainly feels like that, talking to yeah, you. It does feel yeah, like it, a family. And it, it, it really does go to the whole helping people to live. That is absolutely what I get. And I, I, obviously I was having a look on your website before talking to you. And a line that stood out to me is, is we don't take no for an answer. And I've got that 100% from you yeah. already. That you, yeah. there is, it's that standing up, being the voice, because you are a step away from it you can be that voice that can be a little louder and also just that that all-encompassing support which allows that person that the patient to live rather than having to be worrying about everything and it's a massive burden always and you don't want to be more of a burden because you feel like you are a burden and you're not and it's just allowing that kind of allowing life to continue i mean pragmatically we we take the view, which is absolutely the case, that we can't do anything about the prognosis uh, or the diagnosis or the prognosis, and and we're there to get in and 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 fight with with those patients and those families who who need support. Um, and I guess the biggest issue, and again, because of because of our role, our presence, and I I think our success, we're invited to speak at events and be involved in. A number of different initiatives, um, one of which has thrown up the inevitable issues of of um, psychological and emotional well-being for cancer patients. And there's quite a bit of work going on with pilots with some other cancer sites, uh, breast and gynae, for instance, and 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 that's great. But pancreatic cancer usually gets left behind when these pilots are being developed so we're pushing hard for a stronger focus on psychological and emotional support for pancreatic cancer patients not because we want to take anything away from breast or gynae or any of the other cancers but because again coming back to the statistics it's needed with pancreas patients as much if not more than some of the others where the survival rates are much much better and i I guess although I'm not, I'm not trained on the psychological side. As far as the emotional side is concerned, I, I've been through this with Elizabeth um, and I feel able to support others who are going through something similar. But we, we do need more hospital clinic-based psychological and emotional support. And that has to be provided in addition to what's there already because the uh, clinical nurse specialists who who carry a lot of the responsibility and burden for supporting patients after a diagnosis, after surgery, during chemo, etc., have a very heavy workload. And we need to have. I don't think they need to be specialists. They don't need to be clinical psychologists. But we need to understand what the needs are, and we need to provide that access for patients where they want it. And sometimes. Yes patients and families and we were amongst them who we we kind of hunkered down and dealt with this ourselves um we're, we're a fairly large family i've got four children and we, we didn't reach out for help i don't think there was 
as much available then as maybe there is now um, and that's one of the gaps that we we think we've we filled in a sense um, but that's a big issue um, the, the sort of mental health dimension of all of this um, and so where finance isn't an issue um, as we know cancer hits people of loads of money and no money I mean and, and, and so on but um, and where we can help financially we do but often it's something completely different. Um, and we've helped people with all sorts of things which are not directly related to the patient's diagnosis. It may be that the spouse is having a difficulty um, supporting a, a spouse at, a, at an industrial tribunal, for instance, which, which had really nothing to do with her husband's pancreatic cancer diagnosis but she was under huge stress and had to go through this industrial tribunal for fear of losing her job etc etc so our input there was not direct to the patient but with the patient's spouse so whatever it is that they need we'll try and turn our hand to it and and try and you know i don't know about fix it but certainly offer that crucial support that hand holding um which I mean, I know from the feedback we've had, um, work works for them, and and you know, I'm, I'm that's where I'm very proud of what we've achieved. Really, that we have this qualitative feedback from from people who we've um, we've helped. Yeah, and certainly we're going through strange times at the moment. July 2020, we're um, in. I don't know if we're still in the middle of. We're, pandemic is 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 the word of the of the year coronavirus lockdown all of that sort of thing with everyone's focus on on covid-19 how has that uh, affected the people that you that you're supporting at, at the moment i think i've been speaking to these people as we have been as we we do regularly those that are thankfully still with us um i think they they've taken two different views of this at the same time um one is i guess there's a little bit of anxiety about missing face-to-face -face clinic appointments and being able to discuss the nitty-gritty with their consultant um in, in favor of having that consultation over the phone so that's been different and i think a little bit challenging for people um although people usually feel nervous and apprehensive at these clinic appointments anyway i think being there face to face kind of gives people some reassurance and some of the um some of the the, the consultants um one surgeon who we're regularly in touch with and he chairs one of the, the cancer network uh, groups was saying how how more how much more difficult it has been to convey bad news during this period, um, not being able to do that face to face. Um, so that, that's one side of what people have experienced uh, who, who have an existing pathway. Um, the other side of it is that some of them have said that it's quite not nice not having to go to hospital, not having to find a parking space, not having to sit in an oncology waiting room that is one of the worst places in the world to be according to them and i that resonates with me and so i think some of them have quite welcomed 
not having to go to hospital. Um, the, the key thing is, of course, that the, the symptoms and the progression, or not as it may be, of the disease is important to track. So as long as all of that is being tracked, um, some have clearly not been able to go into hospital for chemotherapy sessions. Some have been offered the alternative of oral chemotherapy tablets, and that opens up the discussion about why must we always deliver chemotherapy in hospitals. Um, and I know that there have been pilots, and I think maybe some hospitals do have outreach services. That may or may not have been necessarily appropriate during the, the COVID-19 lockdown period, but it might have given more flexibility with the right kind of safeguards. Um, it's a difficult call when you're talking about infections and, and, and taking services outside of hospital when you have a, a, a line in uh, and, and that opens up all sorts of potential for disease. I, I remember MRSA, you know, being um, ignited in much the same way um, because lines weren't being put in in the right sort of circumstances. So I, I get that. But I think I read a couple of weeks ago that there might be as many as 25,000 more cancer deaths as a result of COVID-19. Well, you, you have to kind of disaggregate that because the, these are people who will have disease progression and will have died. Can, can we, can we analyze um, whether we could have made more interventions in a more timely way with more effect? I, I, I don't know. We're still unpicking that. And, the, the, the local cancer network, regional cancer network, is having some discussions about the impact of COVID-19 on pancreatic cancer patients and how that might impact on them going forwards um, and what more can we do um, to safeguard people in these circumstances should they arise again. Um, so, But otherwise, in terms of COVID-19, we've carried on making grants We've carried on talking to people um, and texting and emailing and sharing, sharing things. Um, and, and one of the common factors has been, um, certainly I can think of four or five of the patients we're supporting at the moment, are very keen gardeners. And of course, the one thing they have been able to do is get out during this period because we've had some fantastic weather. Um, and they send some photographs through of, you know, from, from, the, from the spring flowers right the way through to what we have now. And that's been a real bonus for people, I think, you know, in terms of their physical health and, and their psychological health, being able to get out. If this had been a period where we had just dull, miserable, wet weather for two or three months, I think we would be talking about an even worse amount of collateral damage than... than than we're, we're seeing. So the other thing about the, the impact is that I don't know how soon we will get back to, I won't say normal because we don't know what that looks like, but you know where we were in terms of face-to-face -face clinic appointments and things like that. I mean, the, the, the jury's still out on all of that and the, the hospitals, as I understand it, are, are being very risk averse 
and I understand that, and, and I think that's probably right. But there's, for me, there's a sort of lurking sense of we, we, we can be a bit more flexible. We can flex this up a bit and, and make better provision, whereas a lot of services were just closed down and also the impact of the virus and the publicity, national publicity, definitely kept people away and they decided not to go to their GP with the kind of things that we were talking about when we first started this, this conversation, mm. Charlotte. Um, so people have not been going to their GP, therefore they've not been getting their scans and they've not been coming into hospital with those cancer diagnoses. Um, so I don't know what the impact of, of that will be. Um, but we really need to learn lessons and be innovative, pragmatic health service. I can say this because I've been involved with management of hospitals um, is great in an emergency. Absolutely fantastic. And I think they've done just an outstanding job. You know, I just couldn't imagine them doing any better. Um, but when it comes to management of chronic conditions, which increasingly we're seeing cancer as, um, then we, we need to do that in a slightly different way and not wait until people become very ill. I, I would apply that to all chronic diseases, not just cancer. There are lessons to learn from this. And um, I, I know speaking to surgeons, that they, they've got a list of things that they feel they've learnt and they will try and put into, into practice. Um, and I guess maybe the, their oncology um, uh, medical oncologist colleagues will, will do the same and look at you know, what, what, what they've done and could they have done things slightly differently. So we, we, we'll see. You know, we'll see how good the NHS is, is at learning from this. You know, it, it, it does have a bit of history where you know, it doesn't always learn from these things. Um, but um, in terms of the emergency response to this disease, it's been absolutely outstanding. So no, no criticism there. My argument about chronic disease management um, has been one that I've been peddling for 15 or 20 years. So it's nothing to do with COVID-19 okay. in, in particular. Yeah. Um, I just wondered if... I don't know if you can even do if you've even got managed to be able to narrow it down. But I, what would you say? Obviously, there have been challenges over the last ten years. But what would you say have been some some highlights or some sort of memories that stick out for you with people you've been able to help, maybe, or, or just moments where you've just sort of been able to sort of have that little smile to yourself and go, "Job well done." Yeah, I think I, I think it's based on the feedback which sometimes comes from our initial contact which could be a, a relative not usually the patient sometimes the patient um but um n not always um and so so the feedback is sometimes lovely even though we might only have had a couple of telephone conversations with with the family and and it's it, it's probably been that short because the patient has sadly died um, but there are, I mean, the one, the, the, the one that um, we, we often quote, and, and my, my son was talking about it the other day, um, we, we had, um, had a call, this goes back, I can't remember how many years, but it was quite early on, had a call from a, a woman who, whose husband was, was very terminally ill and was in Addenbrooke's. His daughter was getting married and he wanted to be 
at the wedding, but there was no way of getting him there. So I, I thought about this and I knew two people who worked for local, well, regional Red Cross, and they are ambulance drivers. And so I, I approached them. I said, any chance that your ambulance could pick this patient up, this gentleman up from Addenbrooke's, take him to the wedding, wait for him to have photographs taken with his his um, with his daughter and, and 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 the family, and bring him back. The answer was was yes. Um, and then we had to find someone um, who could support him from a nursing point of view. And we found a healthcare assistant who wasn't working that day and said, I'll go in the ambulance. Um, we discussed the whole thing with the palliative care consultant in terms of his drugs and everything else. And the result was that we got him to the wedding, the photographs were taken. He came back um, three days later. Um, he was discharged, went home and sadly died. And so there's, there's a poignancy to that, Charlotte, um, because of the, the death. But, you know, our intervention was, was successful. And I don't like to sort of beat my chest and... and, and, and uh, brag about these things and that's not that's not what it's about at all but it was really wonderful to be able to make a difference to that family's um not that not their life but that was a life-changing event yeah. for lots of them um and to have dad there and i have a photograph and 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 it's and it's wonderful and i then you know uh, went went um see the wife and I think the son as well on a couple of occasions after that, um, you know, just to say hi and they wanted to say thanks. And so, so yeah, but they've been, I know as a girl, when I got married, having my dad there on the day, because um, people who've listened to the podcast will know my dad had a stroke when I was just, I was 16, very nearly 17. So and we, and, you know, he, he could have died. I'm very aware that my dad, I'm lucky to have my dad. So being able to have my dad with yeah. me on my wedding day yeah. was pretty much only, all I cared about was that my dad was there with me. Yeah. And that yeah. will be, I'm sure, exactly the same for that, that woman who was getting married that day, just having dad there, yeah. even if it was just for photos or anything. That, yeah. That's all that matters sometimes. Yeah. So that, that is life-changing and it is important. I mean, it, it worked. I mean, you have to sort of be fairly assertive with how you so I, i'm immediately thinking I, I switch into a different mode and say right how can we solve this problem um and the guys from red cross who i've known for many many years that they're volunteers they do sort of events and weekend duties and that kind of thing um the healthcare assistant i hadn't uh, met before but we spoke and uh, and, the, and the consultant was very helpful and, and that kind of thing and it and it all it all worked and it, it did make a difference so so yeah, I think in terms of you, you know your your um, your phrase there, a job well done. I think it probably was, and there have been other examples of where our intervention has, I think, brought about a positive result. No change, as I said, to the diagnosis or the prognosis, but things are 
if things are just a little bit better as a result of your intervention, then I, I count that as success. You know, it's, it's what we do. And, and if that helps, then that's really what we're, what we're here for. And that goes back to, that's what Elizabeth would have wanted us to do. Do you know what I mean? That's the bottom line. So that woman is the inspiration for everything we do. And that's why her name is over the door, as it were, on the charity. You know, it, it's, it's important that it's not only a charity that helps people, it's a, it, it's a memoriam for an outstanding wife and mother. I really enjoyed talking to Gerald. I loved hearing about the fund and what they do and how actually the support they offer, it's so much more than just here's some money, get on with it. It is the friendship, it is the advocacy, and it's just being able to carry some of the weight that's on your shoulders. You can get in touch with us here at Purple Rainbow Pancreatic Cancer Podcasts by going to our website, purplerainbow.co.uk.